views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the vision and promise of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Recently, IBM and AFSEA hosted the annual SPADE Defense Conference in Berlin and Washington, D.C., with senior defense and intelligence leaders from the U.S. and around the world, plus industry. The day-long event focused on the theme, delivering on the vision for multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control. I had the opportunity to bring the show to SPADE 2022 in D.C. What do these concepts mean, multi-domain command and control and joint all-domain command and control? How is Canada's defense team pursuing multi-domain command and control? What are the key technological developments supporting these operations and efforts? And how is the U.S. and its allies collaborating to deliver on the vision of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control? In the first half of the special spade edition, I welcome Len Bastian, CIO of Canada's Department of National Defense, and Terry Halverson, former CIO at the U.S. Department of Defense, now General Manager, IBM Federal Solutions, and the host of this year's Spade Conference. Welcome, Len. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Welcome back, Terry. Good to see you again. So, Len, what is the mission of your office and how is it organized? Interesting, because unlike many chief information officers in governments, um, the chief information officer for a Canadian Armed Force has a very different job description. So as a mission statement, we kind of always say we want to get the information to the right place, the right person at the right time with fidelity and security. Um, that's a pretty broad statement of, of what, but it does, it is, it does capture the essence uh, of what our organization tries to do on a daily basis. Wonderful. So, you know, would you tell us more about your responsibilities? So, Again, back to the job description for CIO at Defense. Uh, we are the implementers, uh, if you will, of digital equities. So the way our department is structured, we have the department has three implementers. You have your infrastructure, real property implementer who builds the buildings, the bricks and mortar stuff. We have a materiel implementer who buys the platforms, the weapons, uh, the boots and bullets, as they say. And then you have us. And we take care of all digitally, digitally enabled capabilities for the Canadian Armed Forces and the department. And so when you, that encompasses everything from intelligence to space uh, to command and control, which is why this job description is different than most other CIO jobs. So, you know, with such a portfolio, I was wondering, what are some of the key maybe management challenges you face and how have you sought to address those challenges? Yeah, timely question. Um, you don't have to look far into the news to realize what's going on in the world today. And it's a, it takes a village uh, to, to respond to some of the things uh, we see happening in Europe. And so part of our role is, is to make sure that the armed forces deploy, deploy with the best possible chance of success. Um, the challenge space is, is going to come back to people. Uh, they're our most valuable asset, but they're also the hardest to find and keep. And so talent for us 
is, uh, is, is top of mind when it comes to what's the, what's the challenge space going forward right now. I was wondering if you could tell me, given your background, uh, whether it was in the private sector all those many years ago during your time, uh, how do you lead? What are some of the leadership principles you follow? So I'm a trust but verify kind of leader. Um, when you get into managing large teams, and Terry can attest to this, you simply can't command and control to you know to the nth level. You'll 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 be paralyzed by analysis. You just cannot keep up to that. Um, so I surround myself with strong people that I trust, uh, and I I support them and delegate quite a bit of authority to allow them to, to use discretion. One of my rules of thumb is, is you can say yes to anyone without asking permission, but if you're going to say no to somebody, you check with me first. Um, and that's helped me tremendously along the way to, to gain the trust of our stakeholders, and, and, and that's the armed forces in various environments. And we've developed quite a trust-respect relationship with the, with the operators. And that's, to me, that's essential. So growing the respect, the fidelity of the team, uh, the relevancy, and keeping us, you know, front of mind when it comes to digital and digital equities, so they don't go rogue and try to do it themselves, is is kind of the way I've attracted talent. I've been able to retain some terrific people, and I've worked with some great, great stakeholders over the years. Had a lot of fun. So, Len, that's wonderful perspective on your leadership uh, approach. Now, I'd like to bring uh, Terry and you into the conversation together. So, Terry. Perhaps you could start us off here with the definition of multi-domain command and control. Could you tell us more about that? And then, Len, I'd love for you to follow up. So multi-domain, um, what that really translates to is if, if, if you buy into the premise, and, and, and I do, and I think we're finding more of the defense groups do, that data today has become critically more important. And the aspects of data that you, you have managed. How do you get data to the right commander at the right time? How do you take full advantage of the data you collect? Today, if we're really kind, maybe defense around the world, maybe we use anywhere from 10 to 15% of all the data we collect. So that means you know 85% of what you have is digital waste. If you can reduce that number and so where you're using maybe even 50% of your data, and you can move that data or move the results of that data. And we'll get into a little bit about what the subtlety is about moving data or moving the results. That's a big warfare advantage. Uh, and the ability to change your command and control as the battle changes or as the geopolitical environment that you're prepping for changes is again, it's that is a key advantage in warfare. It's a key advantage in business too, that be speed to decision, but more more impactful in, in warfare. So that's really what multi-domain is about. How do you get decision quality data to the commanders? How do you then enable them to get their decisions out to the units that they're, they need to faster, more securely, um, and... You know, the third can, part of this, less important than the first two, but certainly consideration, and do that with, you know, uh, fiscal responsibility, you know, so you're not, you're not overburdening it with cost. So, so to segue to what, what, what Terry just said, I'll, let me add some Canadian context. Um, data and information is so valuable, such a force multiplier, that, that we've created uh, an office, and we call it um, combat systems integration. So... We're now referring to information and data as a combat system. And they've taken a lead role for us in establishing sort of the high-level requirements for digital, 
Um, so when you get to the, the you know, what is do- multi-domain, all domain, what is, it's the same question and it's, it's met with the same curiosity as what is digital? It, it can have many definitions. So back to my um, comment about, about a, a modern NORAD or continental defense being everything from submarines to satellites. Just count the domains you're going through to get from a submarine to a satellite. And the information has to flow. And, and one of the things I do, so as an assistant, so I'm a CIO, which allows me to be part of the defense team. And I said earlier, I get to implement capabilities that benefits operators and the armed forces, which is a lot of, a lot of fun. The other part of my job, the assistant deputy minister part of the job is providing advice to government. And I have to speak about these things in very layman terms because, you know, ministers, elected officials, even sometimes deputy ministers aren't aren't experts in the IT or digital realm. So you have to you have to kind of translate. And one of the things, one of the analogies I use to translate multi-domain or all domain, I said, because uh, I happen to have a deputy who's a bit of a movie buff. And in the vintage 2014, there was a Fast and Furious. Uh, and they talked about a capability and they used it in the, in the movie called uh, God's Eye. And if you, if you go back, you'll remember that that was just a, it was like a hack capability that you could find anybody anywhere in the world because it was all open source. The data was... This powerful computer could run around and scour up all the data and crunch it for you and within minutes could find you the answer to your question. So if you can imagine an operator being able to do that, you are sitting on the essence of what, you know, all domain capability needs to be. Um, the future of the warfighter isn't going to be specific to any one domain. And, and so I, it's interesting that Hollywood was able to tease us and, and open our imaginations. And I think the journey towards what all domain requirements are going to be maybe started with, you know, a couple of armed forces officers who saw that movie and decided, you know what, that would be a powerful weapon. Well, let me let me actually pick up on what you since you offered your insights, Terry, I want to get both your questions, uh, both your responses on this next question. Uh, What does implementing and Terry, you could kick this off if you'd like the multi domain command and control, what does it seek to achieve? And then I'd love Len you to follow up on that. You know, in simplest form, it, it's a seeking to achieve dominance and command and control over the o- over your threat force. And, and you know, I think Len just laid out a lot about what that means. It means getting, you know, the best quality data, and and best quality data also means the right amount of data. I mean, one of the problems that defense has today, and I then we'll probably talk about this too, is we overwhelm our systems with with data, not with intelligence. But with data, and, and when you ask me what's the difference, intelligence is data that I've analyzed that has a purpose. Data is just flowing into me, and we overwhelm our analysts, we overwhelm our systems today with data. So part of this needs to be how do we, how do we get the appropriate data to the right levels of command? Um, and that is a big focus for all of the U.S. services today, the intelligence community. How do you do that? Um, and that's really what the I would say the second aspect of multi-domain is how do we get the right data um, to the right players you know, at the right time. And that's really easy to say, but it is really, really hard to do. And again, data uh, by itself is of little value. It has to be combined, turned into information, turned into knowledge, eventually intelligence, decision making. So there's a lot going on in that space. And so managing your data, making sure it's the right data from the right source, um, it's fidelity. Absolutely. Terry's bang on. So the, you know, my stakeholders, the business owners, the armed forces um, know what they want. They know what the outcome needs to be. Is that decision. I need to be able to make that decision faster than my opponent. 
our job as CIOs is to find a way to implement the solutions in a paradigm of security and privacy and all kinds of policies to keep us honest. Um, and that's why having the implementer sponsor roles at well established is important. Um, I need a sponsor to tell me what they need, what they want, what outcome they're looking for, and they need to let me do my job, which is implement it inside the boundaries that I have to work within to keep them safe uh, and make sure they don't they don't wander outside the guardrails with things like security and privacy. So that's that's our role. Um, we're not there to be a warfighter. We're not there to imagine what a warfighter war really needs. They tell us, and that's why I found that when we stood up that we call it CCSI or that, that, that combat systems integrator role, it gave me a business person to talk to. And that's the best thing the armed forces could have done for me because otherwise I'm talking to the commanders of the Air Force and Navy and they all want something and I can't afford it all. Um, like Terry said earlier, there's a fiscal responsibility in the public service that uh, unlike private industry, we, we're restrained and have to be frugal. Um, so having somebody to make some decisions around compromise and risk is uh, is one of the smartest things we've done uh, recently when it comes to the digital transformation agenda at uh, Defense in Canada. Well, the other thing I would talk about, we talk about the technical piece, you know, the technology, the data, but there's, there's a couple other things I think are important here. So you're going to hear a lot of discussion at the SPADE conference today about data at the edge and moving, you know, data to the edge. We're certainly going to move more data to the edge, but one of the things we have to be careful about is that data, as Len pointed out, it, it's not worth much until you do the analytics on it and you've turned it into information. Well, you could move the data down to echelons of command that, that aren't equipped to do the analysis. So you really have to think hard about, okay, do I give this piece of data to this echelon of command knowing that they don't really have the analysts to do that? Or do I have to say, okay, I'm going to move it first to this echelon, let them do the analytics, and then pass the finished product out. And that will change as the environment that you're, you're the stage of the warfare you're in. We'll, we'll change some of those answers. So there's a whole set of what I'm going to call, you know, policies and procedures that have to go along with all this new technology. My own feeling right now is we're better on the technology side than we are on the policy and procedure side. That's something we're going to need to really work on. And I think you'll hear that discussion a lot today, too. How is the U.S. and its allies collaborating to deliver on the vision of multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control, transforming the warfighter for the 21st century. I want to know about the Canada story vis-a-vis -vis implementing and its journey towards multi-domain and why it's so important. Yeah, thanks. Good, good question. Not easy to answer. Um, <laughs> is it because it's in its infancy, or is it not? It's it's matured and yeah. I, I think it comes back to like I said, the the word digital gets thrown about and has different meanings for different people. In fact, my boss, the deputy minister, told me recently. He goes, "I'm just going to ban the use of the word digital because it's confusing, um, and it doesn't just mean IT, and and it doesn't just mean business. Uh, and you need to. So all domain comes with a bit of that stigma. It's it's a term that uh, gets thrown about, and the translation between an armed force and a public administration. Uh, our job is try to glue that together. So we know because we work closely with the armed forces, we kind of know what they want and what they mean when they say all domain, you know, uh, command and control. Uh, it's, it, it's, our, it's being able to make sure that our political masters gets the value proposition of what all domain means. And so as the implementer, I'm, we're the glue in the middle. And so we're there trying to make sure that the point's not lost. Like you can get lost when you say the word digital, it's not just IT. Um, it's kind of the same. I'm, I'm finding the same with all domain. The definition, the understanding, the clarity around it needs a bit of focus. And so conferences like this are excellent opportunities um, to, to vocalize, to talk about it in public fora, to share uh, views and opinions, which is why I think it is a great question. Um, the journey for us, like I said, it started years ago. We had a vice chief of defense staff who decided uh, to make a recommendation to our chief of defense staff that we need to be a digital armed forces. And we were lagging behind our allies uh, and we needed to get on with it. And that started the conversation. It created the Office of the Consolidated uh, Combat Systems Integration that I mentioned. It started a conversation around a digital transformation that the department, the institution itself, wants to take on board. Like many institutions right now, they're looking at just better ways to deliver their business. And our business is uh, the support of the Canadian Armed Forces. The conversation today is going to go on and on about different views on what all domain awareness, all domain command and control really means. So I'm as much listening as I am speaking about it. Um, from the Canadian perspective, we haven't been very all domain, right? We've been very kind of stovepipe domains. And so the Army knows what's going on in the Army and the Air Force knows what's going on in the Air Force. We support all of them, um, but they're not integrated. There's not an enterprise view of all that. And so starting incrementally, uh, and I find, you know, just to, to segue a little bit into where we are today, just post-pandemic, we learned uh, a lot about ourselves going, going into the pandemic. Um, we learned how to pivot quickly, which is not our stereotype. Um, we got into a cloud environment and started collaborating within months of the start of the pandemic, something I thought would have taken us years. But what it taught us about ourselves is that digital is not as hard as we thought. And now that we've got a taste of it, I think this journey for all domain, we need to make to remember that is not as hard as we think if we break it down into incremental achievements. We did a great project that to me was uh, an eye opener for all domain with NORAD. It was called Pathfinder. It was a bit of a pilot project where they used open source data to reenact some events that had occurred in the airspaces around the US and Canada. And it was post-mortem. So it was after sort of something would happen. There was the, I think the analog, the anecdote was a, there was a rogue plane took off from Seattle, flew for a couple hours and eventually landed. Um, when they reviewed the data, 
that was available to them when they had time and had the compute power available, they saw, they saw the analogy develop. And then they realized the, the, you know, the extracurricular flight path that was right in front of them and very easy to see, would have been very easy to detect within seconds if they had all domain awareness and had the ability, the compute power, the data, the confidence um, to, to make a decision at that point. It proved to us that this is, this is achievable. Um, it needs digital and it needs uh, an, a new way of thinking about, you know, solving that problem as opposed to the old way of waiting for somebody to call in, you know, call the help desk, there's a problem. And then we know there's something going on. This is a, a very aggressive, modern way of looking at uh, all the available data. One of the things I would challenge some of our panelists today is all domain, we typically think of our military domains, you know, the sea, air, land, space, and now cyber. Think about open source. Like that's another domain where the data is harder to verify. So if there was a way to qualify it, it's but it's very powerful. You know, I've I one of the areas I've been interested in, in lately is sort of open source cyber offense. You know, let that sink in for a minute. And if you're on Twitter, you'll see what Unanimous is is tweeting all the time about how they're involved in the Russia Ukraine events and they're doing cyber offense. And how does that play into our cyber forces? Because uh, like the U.S., we have cyber command and we have cyber abilities and we do cyber defense and cyber operations. But we're bound by policy and, and we're bound by law sometimes. Open source cyber offense. Um, it's a new digital equity that we need to be aware of. So in the data space, it's kind of the same equity. There's open source data that we can benefit from. We just need to learn how to pick it up clean it and trust it. It's getting more complicated and complex. You can only, you can only imagine. Yeah, I, I just, I, Terry, I would like to get, given your background, when you were at uh, both DOD and Navy, what's your perspective where you, the U.S. is, if you don't mind answering that? I think the U.S. and, and, and our close allies are, are ahead of other forces. But where we are, I think, really struggling, and I think that Len nailed part of that, is how do you de- Find all this so that everybody can play the same way. Um, you think about just trying to get, say, a, a multi-domain set of solutions in one service. But what we really want is a multi-domain set of solutions that's good not just for the U.S. and our defense forces, but for Canada, the U.K., Australia, Germany, Japan, and then throw in the what a harder part is this. We are in today's geopolitical world kind of introducing new allies into things that may not have been traditional allies. How do you do that and still maintain kind of the base level of security that you need to do? So we're adding a lot of complexity at the very same time that one of the key tenets of multi-domain is take complexity out of the system. So it it is this, and that's where I think we are in, in the U.S. and I think with our allies I think that's the big struggle now. How do we start removing this complexity? And particularly, how do we get the complexity out at the tactical level so that tactical commander gets finished product, gets what he needs, and and isn't worried now about where the data came from in terms of verification. Somebody's taking care of that for him. And it's in a format that the tactical commanders from all of those allies can use and share with each other with the same understanding. That's wonderful. That's going to be Len, hard. Did you, did you want to add anything about how you're working with allies in the U.S. or beyond? Yeah. Well, Al, so Canada, um, and we've talked about this, um, our armed forces is not as large 
uh, our, the bench is not as big as some of our, our, our allies. But I've heard through the grapevines that we typically punch above our weight. And so that's good to hear. As an enabler and an implementer, I'd like to hear that when we do send our forces out to be part of a coalition, um, that they're well-equipped and they perform at their best, and they do. Um, we've never unilaterally deployed alone. <laughs> we've always deployed in coalition. We've always been part of a team. And and so Terry's right. The ability for us to share, interoperate is essential. And in fact, Terry's a founding member of a CIO forum when he was a CIO at DOD. And for the first time, the five CIOs of the five I nations would get together like we do at NATO with the 30 nations, but a more concise conversation around the table of, of five countries that started sharing intelligence generations ago. Um, and it became very, very powerful for us to make sure we don't develop platforms and capabilities that actually can't communicate with each other or can't share. Um, and that comes back to data and it comes back to our data strategies being, you know, interoperable and, and coming from the same place and, and, and with similar requirements. One thing I learned with that forum was regardless of size of budget or size of force, we all had the same problems. And a lot of them were, you know, policy and administrative and, and we shared how to break through some of those barriers. It, it's a very powerful forum and I, I I think it's it's a, a force multiplier uh, for the CIOs of those nations. I just came back from NATO. Uh, I can't tell you um, how much energy there is in that institution right now, given everything that they're participating in and how they're handling it. On the technology side, um, NATO nations are very receptive. And we had partner nations in this time who are not NATO allies, but wants they want to be a part of the conversation. So Japan and Australia joined us for a day and talked to us about their cyber strategies, their 5G initiatives. These are these are great conversations to have. And so being a part of a global team uh, feels a lot better uh, than being sort of, uh, you know, a, a force on its own. And I've, I, you know, I say it in jest, I don't want to insult anyone in, you know, in Canada, but I have, I have a lot more in common with my CIO colleagues from defense departments than I do sometimes with my own government uh, CIOs, just because we share problems and solutions that are, uh, that are very unique to a defense uh, defense environment. An important environment, right? To what extent does the future of defense require we get this multi-domain command and control right? Yeah, it's, I've been told um, that we will not be a modern armed force if we don't. And as I said, we have to equip in Canada anyway, uh, because we don't have the numbers. So this for us is a deal breaker and we're looking at the opportunity to work with, um, you know, in the modernization of NORAD as we look at it as an all domain problem to solve, if you will, um, that's our opportunity. That's the opportunity when you see two nations leaders shake hands and say, this is a priority, um, that signals activity that we could, you know, we couldn't have asked for more top cover to get on with it. And uh, we will be leaning into sort of what all domain means in the context of NORAD in the, in the coming months as we take advice to our government and get direction. Uh, and that's happened, that's happening today. Uh, and so there will be, you know, there'll be announcements, announceables by our, you know, you know, by our administration in the coming months and over the next few years, um, that's going to demonstrate what that means. So, so you got to think of um, when you're in, when you're in government, you don't, you don't get to go to the board of directors and ask for a bunch of money I'd like to try something on for size, go for a test drive. If it works, maybe we get to keep it. Um, you have to be much more frugal and strategic. So when they actually tell you to do something and give you the money to do it, you have to be successful. 
And so being smart on all this now is our time to plan, get informed, um, listen to industry. One of the things going forward is these are big things. These are capabilities that as a department, as a government, we haven't built internally. These, this is going to take a global team and global industry team's uh, involvement. Uh, you'll see us ask for help in several areas. They're all going to tie together. I would, I would challenge anyone to say n- any of the projects we do in the next decade are going to be connected um, you know, in their essence to modernizing something like a NORAD or a Continental Defense Initiative. It's all going to come back to the defense policy we've released in, gov- in, in Canada. Uh, Strong, Secure, and Engaged was released sort of in 2016, 17, vintage. Um, we'll be refreshing it with a conversation around, you know, what this modern uh, continental defense feels like. And it becomes, uh, it becomes a government objective. And therefore, you know, what they say, what fascinates your boss completely consumes you. Uh, and so that's where we'll be. Uh, in the next uh, the next cycle, I, I think this. I think there's a, a pretty good premise, and I agree with it. That the technology advantage that the U.S. and its allies have is is diminishing um, as technology becomes more shared. Everybody gets gets it, um, and you know the military secrets are probably the most fleeting. You know, there's been a lot of quotes about that. There's probably truth to that. Technology is becoming more open and shared. So this is the way that I think we maintain the advantage over the threat forces. Uh, I think it's interesting. There is like, there's no contemplating failure here. Every, it is all, but we're going to get this right. And there is a commitment, you know, at certainly in the U.S., certainly you heard in Canada and really uh, maybe a strongest commitment I have seen in a long time amongst the allies that this is something we have to get right. And it's going to be a journey and it's not going to be overnight. We'll make incremental gains, but we're going to keep focused on it. And I think the other piece that everybody realizes, which I think is a big breakthrough, there's no end to this journey. This journey will keep changing based on how we let and ha- and want technology to influence the way we conduct uh, command and control and sensor operations. And I think as that becomes more structured, and you heard Len talk about work with industry more, you're going to see the the challenges that this brings up go right back to industry. So in a way, you're going to have these influence what are the next technologies you see. So when we get this right, this should be really um, an ongoing, hey, this worked, this didn't, this goes out, this new technology comes in, answering this requirement, and it won't, it won't stop. And I think that's the right way to do that. And I'm really, I'm heartened by, I see that being finally acknowledged that this, there's, there's not an end point here. It's just a continual way of improving your command and control. Sounds like the agile method almost in practice in some respects. I think it's a good analogy. I think it, it, it's agile. It's, it's, you know, and sometimes we pin words on all this. Yeah. I think it truly is just an acknowledgement that this has got to be an area, this, the command and control and the use and share of that data that is continually reviewed and we continually focus and, and work to improve. Um, no end point. Terry's absolutely right. This will evolve. And as you look at other disruptive technologies, which are just on the horizon, you know, back office 5G, system to system 5G, as opposed to just edge communication usage, it's going to, it's a game changer. Um, quantum is not far away. And so as these things come at us, we'll need to evolve, you know, the all domain capabilities. And you put all that together and imagine Internet of Things and 
you know, 5G changing the internet and quantum making endless compute power available. Um, it's kind of probably what Hollywood was imagining when they, they, you know, joked about a God's eye type capability. But the technology evolution is kind of making that feasible. And so Terry's right, we're going to do something and get started uh, sooner than later, and then we're going to evolve it. And it has to cycle because if not, you're just not going to be at the edge. And I think the goal of this is to put our armed forces back at the cutting edge uh, of this digital transformation. Well, before we close, I really want to get, you mentioned earlier, Len, and from a Canadian perspective, your data strategy and how important it is in the success of realizing whatever vision of uh, multi-domain command and control. Where does it fit in, in the building blocks, and why is it so important? What are some of the challenges of, of lassoing it? Yeah, Terry t- Terry opened up Pandora's box with that one. <laughs> um, the, like Data strategies are great. Um, they're kind of like policy. If they're not grounded in, in, in feasibility, then getting them implemented could be a daunting task. Um, Terry said the U.S. has more data than it could ever use, and we're in the same position. I have more data stores and, and, and ca- capacity and data on disk than I'll ever be able to process. And that's a shame because somewhere in all that data is very valuable knowledge. Um, so our data strategy is founded in and making it um, a, a bit of a go-forward strategy is now that we've discovered the power of the cloud and we started to use our productivity suites and started to move our data through a, a more cloud-based architecture, we cooked in information management into our cloud uh, usage, which means that uh, gone are the days of unstructured data. Um, I don't know what we'll ever be able to do with all those repositories, legacy views but we have to we have to start and what we've decided to do is now that we've we find ourselves here as a result of the burning platform we've been on for the last two years um, we're going to take advantage of it and we're going to start managing our data in a very structured way in the cloud which is very powerful we will still need to go back and you know find a way to clean use trust secure all that data but we 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 may not be able to ever get to the the end game going backwards but if we do it properly and set ourselves up now that the migration to the cloud's happening, you can avoid creating these data lakes that you never get to swim in. And so the vision for us is create, you know, data structure and architecture that's grounded in enter- and from an enterprise view and that everything is go forward will be available for, you know, for digital agenda. And and that's that's a game changer. And I would dare say I'm kind of glad we had the, if there's a silver lining to the last two years from an IT perspective anyway, it, it forced us um, to realize the value of, of that digital equity that was just everyone else was using. We just didn't have the time or money to get there. When pushed, we got there. And, and I think the opportunities are endless. Before I let you both go, we're here at Spade 2022. What do you hope to get out of today's discussion, Len, to you first? Um, to be honest, two things. One, I want to get, I've been, I've been locked down for a few years. Um, I want to get to hear from my colleagues in the U.S. who are going to be presenting and speaking today. I want to hear from industry. I want to learn while I'm here. And uh, I'm not going to put a parameter or boundary on on what I'm going to learn because, to be honest, I just want to be on receive mode, you know, for that. The other thing is the message, which I thank you for the platform this morning, 
um, to get out on what's important to us from a NORAD, from a digital transformation agenda, so that I leave here knowing a few people have heard what we're, what's going to consume our priorities, you know, for the next several years. And, and that may motivate some conversations and some, some idea sharing and some imagination um, with my team and others that could benefit us mutually in the future. I think obviously the same answer as Len. I, I would put a couple of details in there. I think we were under a period until recently where the technology that enabled us to grow data was far outstripping the technology uh, to analyze data. I mean, we, 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 we've thrown Moore's Law out the window and we're creating new data faster, faster, faster. More sensors everywhere. Now, I think there's a recognition that there's got to be a more focus on the technology now to help the analytics of that. I think that message needs to get out here today. I think it, I think it will. And then I think the other thing we talked about, that while the technology is an important component of this, it's not the only component. And as Jeremy said earlier, I think we now also have to spend some time on the the policy and procedures that go around with how do we now put the, and, and everybody thinks this is a bad word, the kind of the bureaucracy, the administrative controls in place that allow us to standardize enough to get the data where it needs to be in the format it needs to be at the right level. And that's all have to be agreed upon. Um, and when it can, then you can start applying the technology to do that for you, which becomes a big force multiplier. And we just aren't going to have enough people analysts to do all this. So now we've got to focus on how do we design a system to enable technology to be that, that force multiplier for the analysts. Glenn Bastian, CIO of Canada's Department of National Defense. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. What can we learn from the U.S. Air Force's experience with the B-2 bomber? We'll explore this question and so much more when a special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of Business of Government Hour, exploring multi-domain and joint all-domain command and control, transforming the warfighter for the 21st century. I'd like to welcome retired Major General Bob Wheeler and welcome back Terry Halverson for the second half of this special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. I appreciate your time today. Welcome back, Terry. Good to be back. So we're at Spade and we were just talking about the importance of data and how it will help us realize the vision of the uh, multi-domain MDC2 and, and how that will work. Bob, I wanted to get your perspective. With your work in the Air Force and especially with B2, 
How, how did you get data to the warfighter? What were some of the stories you can tell us about that? Well, I think from my perspective, data is the key to staying inside the decision loop of the bad guy. It always has been. So the key in, in a lot of places is, you know, you, you see movies like Top Gun, and we, we watch that, and it's all about the pilot, and it's all about the capabilities of, of that aspect to it and, and being able to be, you know, being in the stick and rudder skills and that. That's a piece of it. But the reality of it is it's really about owning the data on the battlefield. And sometimes I don't think people realize how critical that aspect is to stay inside of the decision loop. If you think today about all the things that are on the move in the battlefield, imagine they're moving all the time, constantly. How do you find them? How do you know where they're at? How do you know the intent of the bad guy? Well, all of that's given to you in data. So in, in a case like the B-2, for example, you know, it, it's an incredible aircraft. It's Nobody else in the world can make it. It has it's manufactured in a way that has such tight tolerances. It has it has the stealth capabilities and, and it has uh, the best pilots and it has all of the capabilities that you would think of a modern uh, airplane that would have. But the issue that made it the most capable is the fact that we added a lot of data capabilities to it, so that data could be brought to the aircraft in a way that was ahead of everybody else, that gave us the edge, that allowed us after, especially after 9/11, with the first ones in into Afghanistan, Iraq, some of the longest combat missions in the world, and all of that was provided by basically systems that were built and provided by by the warfighters putting together for that particular area of the world the kind of data that was necessary. So, bottom line to it was. We had the data first, we had it merged, we had it on our screens, and it gave us an insight and in where to go and how to make those decisions faster than anybody else could. And that was the key to the fight, having that large bomb load, that stealth capability, and having the data. And so I think people don't realize how important that is today, to merge highly classified data off of really exquisite platforms, but also that unclassified data that could come from social uh, type uh, apps out there that you would take as, well, that's not good data. Well, it can be. It can be pointers. It can be information. How you merge that, how you bring that together, that is the key to staying ahead of the bad guy in any future fight, whether it's a counterinsurgency or strategic against a near-peer competitor. Well, I think what, what Bob just described, what he was able to accomplish with, uh, with his team and, and, and some of the other members of the Air Force, is it really becomes the, the, a microcosm of what we're trying to do on a, a much more larger scale with JAD-C2. So, you know, if you can get that data, as they were able to do, to the pilot and in, in a format that didn't overwhelm them, frankly, in a format that complemented what the plane did, and gave them the data. I hate to use this expression, but I think in this case it's really it gave them the data just in time for their mission set. How do we do that now on, on this on, on a more global and, and when I say global, we talked this morning with with Len Bastian, who yes. told us all about how critical it was that all our allies are playing in this because we don't go to war alone. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could duplicate what uh, Bob was able to do in that in the B2, that will get us the right answers. I have a follow-up question, but I want to, if we can step back a little bit conceptually, we, we, we have multi-domain command and control, and we have the joint all-domain command and control. 
are they the same thing? Are they different? Is there a maturation? What, what is, could you help us with the definition for a lay, lay audience? Okay, so we're good at definitions in DOD, and sometimes we don't follow them very well. I'm going to make this simpler, and Terry, Terry can add to it. So joint all-domain C2 is the ability for us to merge, if you will, space, air, and terrestrial layers of communication, C2, pictures, everything, into a fabric that is resilient, that is secure and provides the right data at the right point. The multi-domain C2 that we just talked about, multi-domain command and control, is a subset of that. In my okay, great. I look at it as a subset. It's a service subset. The joint all-domain C2 encompasses the whole joint force. The multi-domain C2 can contain multi-domains, but it can be service-specific or it could be joint, but joint all-domain C2 always means the larger picture in that particular case. Terry, would you like to add anything to that? The only thing I would add, that, that's, that's, that is absolutely true if you're looking at the U.S. picture. Okay. In, in Europe, multi-domain really does mean JADC2 because they, 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 don't, they don't have the same structure. Most of their militaries are, are maybe more, more orchestrated together. You know, they, they, may, they don't have the same, say, separation of services that the U.S. has. So the reason we put joint in it is to just keep emphasizing we're going to have all our services talk. Europe, multi-domain, and what they're really interested in is the multi-domain of all of the countries, say, in NATO, playing in there. The largeness of our services, the competition that goes on, it's really why you have to have something large, like a joint all-domain C2, to be the over-architecture that kind of joins all of this together. Honestly, it's a platform as important as the F-35, as an aircraft carrier, or as any other thing that's in any of the services. The platform that we're doing with JADC2 will be whether we win or lose the next fight, unequivocally. That's my next question, is how important it is to the success of the future military right now. So my other question is, what about challenges? What Could you what are some of the challenges you faced in your previous role with B2 as an example with that anecdote? And how did you, how did you work around those or tackle those challenges? I'll just say what I see is, is, is the continuing challenge. How about that? Is that a fair point? Yeah. So the continuing challenge I'm seeing is the timelines of the acquisition processes and the pace of the threat. The pace of the threat is, is much faster than we've ever seen. I'll give the example of China, for example, where we've seen uh, the, their ability to build things at a pace that we've not, we've not predicted, always wrong, always, I mean, we've always been behind the eight ball in that particular one. And that's just one example across the world in that particular arena. So the point that you have to realize is that you have to think about, okay, what's the timeline we're working at? You'll hear discussions of 2030. We don't have that time. We have to do things inside of 24-month delivery times to the warfighter in the field built. So what does that mean? That means that while those forces are deployed or in different locations, we have to be upgrading them. We have to do this differently than we have in the past, okay? And there's absolutely capability to do that today. And I think the acquisition authorities that we have today, I don't think, I know, allow us to if they're done correctly. They're designed for this scenario. It's just not something we're used to doing. It's not something that we've done traditionally in the past. And especially something of a platform like this, which is a, a set of networks, a network of networks that provides this JADC2 platform, it's the perfect capability to provide that delivery at speed to the warfighter in 24 month or even better increments. I think, I think that's exactly right. We've got to, we've got to be able to say, well, it may take you 2030 to get 
the full concept of, of what we you know ideally want as today's JADC2 with the full knowledge, as we talked this morning, JADC2 won't end. So whatever we think we're going to have in 2030 sure. today will not be what we have in 2030. We've got to be able to do this more incrementally and do it faster. Uh, and I think Bob's right. I think 24-month increments are realistic given the authorities we have today and given where technology is and, and roll that out. We don't need to wait to roll out the final solution. Let's, you know, let's roll out, hey, what we've got today, move that forward, get the next 24 cycle, roll that out, and know that one of those cycles, we're going to start to roll it out, and that change is going to hit, and we're going to say, oh, back up. We're going to roll out this new technology. You know, taking Terry's comment that he made today, he said as more, he said more cycle, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So if you take that context alone, how could you provide something in 2030 that would be relevant if you're working on it today? You have to provide it every 24 months because you have to continually update it or you'll never stay inside the decision loop of the bad guy. There's no way. And I would say more importantly, as importantly, not more importantly, as importantly, you won't stay inside the technology loop either. Now, DOD does not need to be extreme cutting edge in everything, but it needs to be modern. And, and, and I would say that means you've got technology that in many cases that's, that's less than three or four years old. Well, to keep that, you've got to yeah. augment that every 24 months. And it is something that, that we're getting better at, but it's that you've heard a lot of you in the conference say about culture change. That's what I was going to get to. Yeah, this is How a culture this change. It's a huge culture change okay. because it's, it's – and, and for for some good reasons, I mean, we've put a lot of things in our acquisition cycle for good reasons. And now we've got to, say, take a little risk with some of those good reasons because of everything that's happened in the environment, faster technology, faster threat, time has become the higher risk. And, and that's a culture change for us. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a fascinating comment that Terry said because I agree with him on the leading edge. What is kind of cool, though, about the new technologies they allow us to do this while forces are deployed. They allow us, because industries had to do it that way. Uh, ex exactly that. And it's actually, in many cases, cheaper. And it's a way to save taxpayers money and provide them better capabilities, more resilient and more secure. That's an opportunity that we need to grab a hold of. And that's going to mean a different mindset culture uh, to go forward in that particular arena. So I think this is the opportune time for what I would call Western Ingenuity, which I still think is the best in the world, they, and I really believe that that's the one thing that our culture in the West provides better than any group I've seen, and using those and not governing them, if you will, or not slowing them down by rule sets, but actually moving forward so that the warfighter gets the best capability as fast as possible, as cheap as possible to the taxpayer. Balancing those two is really possible in the JADC2 environment. I think it's kind of neat. Oh, I, was, I might, I might just change Bob's word a little bit instead of saying West. I would say democracy, democratic culture. Oh, that's a fair point. I did, I meant it. When I think of those, I think of the democracies of the world. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very fair point because those are our, our coalition partners and our allies. One last, well, one last question, if that's okay, is like, is, is there anything? So we have this technology. We're catching up. We're catching. We're doing it. We're deploying it on in almost near, real time. Is there anything around the policy or legislative area that we have to worry about in order to realize this? Do you guys want to tackle that part? Is this part of the discussion? Yeah, I, you know what I think, and I want to say this carefully. 
I don't know that every one of the laws that we're putting on the table to look at now about technology changes are right. I do know that it's right that we're having those discussions. I mean, you heard Bob start this off. Technology is changing. And when it does, there are going to have to be some changes in the law. There's going to have to be some governance that we hadn't thought about before. And, you know, this will be messy. We're not going to get all those roles right from the first time. The fact that we're having the discussions and we're putting those things out there and people disagree, that's that. I think that's the classic lesson, and that's why we're good at this. My add to this is, you know, we've just changed from counterinsurgency the last 20 years. It's amazing, okay? And we're the best in the world at it. Now we're having to go to more strategic near peer. That's a shift for many folks. And that's, and you know, I lived in the strategic world and then flipped to the counterinsurgency. I've seen both worlds. Many of the senior officers that are coming up today have not seen this change. It's a dramatic difference in risk taking. And that, that risk aspect is extremely hard for some people to grab a hold of right away. It takes, it takes years to, to develop that. Um, I will tell you the one thing that can help make it successful now to Terry's point is something that I think Terry did very well in his position as the DOD CIO. We had a relationship with Congress. And that relationship, we would talk to the committees, we would talk to the different folks. And when we started to see laws that were problematic for something, or if we saw parts of the, of the 5000 series uh, that, were, that, that were problematic, we would go talk to them about that. They would make those changes, or they would give us an understanding saying, hey, we really need to go faster with these other transactional authorities. We need to take more risk here. Uh, we, we may have some failures in here, but we need, to, we need to fail fast. When you see the threats that we see today and you talk to Congress and you, they understand and they give you that, that green light, that relationship really matters. So I just think that it's very important that the services maintain those relationships with Congress very tightly and constantly talk through things so that the laws are changed in a timely manner. And they're also, Congress understands the risks that need to be taken given the threat that's out there. Because I think in the end game, you're going to save a lot of taxpayers' money if you approach it that way. Back to you. The only other point I would make, I think Bob's right, we, we have a big culture shift. And we did have a time period when we were looking at more near-peer and strategy. But I want to make the point, today, we're not going back to the Cold War. This is a new type of near-peer uh, effort that it that is much more comprehensive. I mean, there are much greater economic parameters to this, social parameters that that we just didn't deal with. That now you have to, and couple that with you're going to do. And I think Ukraine's been a great example. Ukraine is the first big engagement that's being wholly done on social media. You look at you're seeing missile strikes near time. You're seeing you know. Children get get hurt. And and you know what? While it may not have been had been visible, that has changed behavior of both sides. It, it's a different type of 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 kind of near peer world that we're we're building into. It's not it's not the Cold War role. You know, I always used to tell my folks that the strength of our nation, the United States at least, is not its military. It's its economics, it's its capability, it's its people. And that is the real strength that provides who we are. And, you know, that that is something that we have to keep in mind as we go forward, because a lot of the technologies that make industry strong today and have made us leaders also in this particular arena can be really useful in the military side as well. So I just think it's it's a very important aspect of what we are. Anything else, Terry? Do we want uh, to you know what? I, I'll just say one of the things, that, and Bob and I both have testified to this, I think 
that the, and I'll quote it this way, and some people got upset, but I don't care. Our secret weapon is, in fact, our relationship that the U.S. military has with industry. We, we consult them a lot. And, and is it perfect? No. But we do it more than I've seen any other group do. And we'll follow, you know, you look at the things we did in the Second World War where we would take people from industry, we'd put them in charge. Mm-hmm. We, we'll do that. And I do think that's part of the reason that we, we tend to be able to deliver faster. It, no one else has that type of relationship and, and keeping it competitive, too. So that you're getting the best of the best. Um, and you can point to the, the big episodes where we may have failed at that, but everybody forgets about the 200 where we really got, <laughs> it right. got it right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so I completely agree with that. His, his thoughts on public-private partnerships are critical. You'll have some within the, in the military side has some legal stuff that they're constantly worried about, and they're, oh, and, and they're actually impeding in some cases. But that's, if it's done correctly, that public-private partnership is powerful. And it needs to be something that's emphasized uh, within our Congress and in the DOD because it can really help make people understand what's available in Silicon Valley, what's available in the traditional integrators, and how you marry some of those things to provide the best capability for the young airmen, Marine, Army, Navy seamen out there to, to make a difference and to make sure that, first off, the first mission in the DOD is deterrence. We've got to be the best in the world. We have to be, because the objective is not to be the best war fighting capability in the sense of being able to use it, but to deter. And then if we if we can't deter, then the best war fighters out there. So I think what we have in those public-private partnerships really bring that to fruition if it's done correctly. And I am telling you, you can go to historical context and see where that is really the truth. That's wonderful. Bob, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you. Terry, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the vision and promise of multi-domain command and control, joint all-domain command and control, with Len Bastian, CIO of Canada's Department of National Defense, Terry Halverson, former DOD CIO, and now General Manager of IBM Federal Solutions, and U.S. Air Force retired Major General Bob Wheeler. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. 
We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition. Pay benefits in retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.